This is Client Side from Fox Agency. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about! Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Ryan Morrison is a successful commercial leader with over 20 years of experience helping companies of various sizes achieve their objectives and ensuring individuals unlock their talent and fulfill their potential. His experience covers strategic planning, transaction to enterprise sales, the identification and development of strategic partnerships and leadership of highly successful teams. He also leads global marketing strategy. He is currently building a new global commercial division for True Narrative, having helped build the company from scratch. Ryan Morrison, welcome to ClientSide. Thanks, Nathan. Great to be here. Absolutely fantastic speaking to you. You get your degree from the University of Salford in human geology, geography, in fact, in 1999. Typically, founders of disruptive tech businesses usually study something like computer science or computer programming. Tell us how you go from uh, geography to being a commercial director uh, and helping to start True Narrative. Yeah, so I guess it's one what, what, one one time, hopefully my parents aren't listening to this, but I guess I went to university <laughs> with no necessarily clear direction of, you know, I want to be a geography professor or a, a particular reason why I wanted to do geography. It was just the, the kind of subject at the time. So I would say my life lacked direction at that time. Um, I went to do a degree and, and, and picked a, uh, a university in a city that I would enjoy. Uh Having, I guess, going through my final year at university, uh, I saw a number of my friends uh, all, all start career in sales. So I think it was bizarre of all the people I lived with, about 8% were, 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 were starting a career in, in sales. Hmm. So I decided that that was the easy route. Um, and I found myself going through various graduate programs, um, being selected into those. So I guess I've got an early inkling that I was all right potentially in sales Mm. and um, I then got selected to work for a company called QAS through that process. Mm. I can't have asked for a better foundation um, for my career. I spent just over four years with that business that it latterly got bought by Experian but it had a very very strong uh, focus on sales and marketing and in particular on training for for sales. Um, I moved on from QAS and almost as a polar opposite worked for an organization that was more unstructured when it comes to sales. And and, and actually I was asked to kind of put some structure into that business, but that was more focused on marketing services than pure data services like QAS. Hmm. Um, And then the third step in my career, again, after spending just about four years at, at, at that second business, um, I moved to GB uh, or GBG, where I spent nearly nine years at that business. Um, I don't think I ever had a role for more than for more than two years um, mm. in that company, as it as it grew very very fast. Um, mm. And uh, through that process at GB, especially, I guess I got to better understand what it took to run a business versus just be a salesperson. Sure, and, and that was a big change for me. Um, it, it had a very flat structure at GB, uh, and it meant that I got insight into, you know, what running your own PL looks like, what mm. giving ownership to people looks like, what good leadership is. 
Um, and what happened with that business is it, it rightly became corporate as it grew. And I decided that I was still young enough to warrant doing something a little bit more exciting and that would push me when I was still just the right side of, uh, you know, the right side of 40, if you like. Mm, so, really um, interesting. So, so let's talk a little bit about your time at GBG. You, you've held several leadership roles at the company, a, a global identity verification solutions business looking into fraud and compliance. Tell us what problems you helped your clients solve and what was your role and responsibility? Yeah, so the, 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 the problems that, that GB solved at the time were in particular areas. So when I worked for the IDB business, um, we were helping organizations automate more of the customer onboarding process. We were helping them get more good customers accepted first time, but for very one particular part of that kind of customer onboarding process, if you like. Um, so a lot of it was about a better customer experience. Um, there was an element of reduction of fraud from an IDB perspective, but, but it wasn't key focus. The last role I held at the business was, was definitely more focused on, on fraud. Um, so GB had made another acquisition and I was asked to go and run the commercial part of, of, of that business. And, and the problems that we were solving then were very much around the, the, the fraud risk um, that was seen by organizations. And actually a lot of my time was spent with companies in, in Asia Pacific um, and other parts of, of, of the EMEA region. Um, so, so, so that's what they did, um, yeah. but they were solving very, very specific issues at the time. And I would say almost, uh, certain elements of, of tactically solving certain aspects of that customer life cycle, um, but not necessarily helping an organization solve it end to end, which is really where, where, where true narrative started. Let's talk a little bit about True Narrative then. Your, the company was set up in 2016. Your mission is to make safe commerce simple. Talk a little bit about what some of your customers' biggest problems are and how do you help solve them? The, the, the strap line for us says it all really. And, and often you can not talk to the strap line, right? Because it just becomes something that people don't notice. Sure. Um, the real important aspect of it is the balance there between the term safe okay, and simple. There are a lot of organizations out there and whether you call yourself fintech or they call themselves fintech or regtech or whatever the, the, the latest term is, that are promising to make it simple for organizations to onboard, to manage customer risk. Um, but actually, a lot of the time, those organizations and those different suppliers um, don't necessarily focus on the safe. So it's all very well going and making it really easy for a customer to onboard with an organization. Sure. But actually... At the same time, it needs to be robust and it needs to make sure that the regulator is happy and that you've got a very, very clear view of the risk as well as making it simple. So that, that makes safe commerce simple is really important and powerful for us um, as, a, as a message to the market because it is all about the balance between those two, those two things. Moving on to, to the second part of the question around what problems we solve. So... Perhaps look, there are lots of problems we solve because we sell a platform that does lots of things, okay, um, through through one single API. But perhaps the biggest problem we solve, and that perhaps one of the, the 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 biggest reasons why we started the business was the marketplace is very broken up, and every organisation we speak to typically has 
different processes, different technology partners. They're wrestling with how do I get these systems to talk to each other to deliver a coherent decision process for my customer to make the experience uh, really, really positive. Um, and that's really hard to do with legacy processes. Sure. What we do is we help that organization move from that broken up, disparate siloed process where it, there's lots of inefficiency, there's lots of customer referrals, people dropping out the process, good customers having friction, bad customers getting through the process. We mm. join that up so the experience for good customers is great and the experience, and we, we identify the bad actors, if you like, at the same time, but do it very quickly. Hmm. That's, the biggest, that's the biggest problem we're solving in the market right now. Just on that then, you, you transform financial crime management processes for banks, lenders, and e-commerce businesses. Why do financial crime management processes need to be transformed? Is it because of what you said earlier, the fact that there are more and more bad actors now that slip through the cracks, and at the same time, you want to Im improve the customer experience for your for your customers. Yeah, I think. Look, ultimately, regulation isn't going away. Um, fraud risk isn't going away. Fraud risk, especially we've seen during COVID, is more dynamic than it's ever been. Sure. And the regulators come out very, very quickly and stated that they're not going to ease up on the regulatory requirements of organisations. Um, they, why do they need to be transformed? Because I think more than ever, organisations are looking for competitive advantage um, in, 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 in modern day. There are lots of competitors to the legacy providers, right? So whether it's the, 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 the fintech organisations that are purportedly more agile than the tier one banks, right? Um, mm. We as a society demand everything to be quicker and more instant, instantaneous at all levels of our life. And we saw it a number of years ago on, on personal products. We're seeing it more and more on B2B products now um, that people don't accept that things are going to take more than an hour or yeah. to happen, right? It's so, the Amazonization of the world. <laughs> it is. It's exactly that. And, and actually, financial crime processes have historically been seen as the thing that holds that process back. Sure. You've got that classic competition internally between financial crime, um, wanting to ensure the process is robust, and marketing and sales, whoever else, commercial entity within an organization, just wanting it to be quick. Mm. That balance is really, really important. Um, and, and, and that's another reason why uh, financial crime processes need to be transformed, because of that pressure from those macro factors that are happening in the market, and then those pressures to be more competitive and better than other organizations but do it in a really robust manner so so let's talk a little bit about covid19 specifically since you touched on it earlier talk about some of what what the biggest priorities that you had prior to covid19 and how how have those priorities changed as a result of of the virus when it first hit in early march and yes. where are you today yeah, I, it's an interesting one. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure our, our actual priorities necessarily change too much. It's how we went about them that probably changed. So the, the priorities are always to better serve our customers, right? So that's in terms of attracting customers, attracting leads, converting business that we want to write 
um, and then serving the customers to ensure that they get the best possible service in the market and don't want to ever go anywhere else. And we do that through having the best product and the best people um, that, that, that we can. So, you know, the, the, the priority for the business is to scale, but scale responsibly, mm. um, which is important to us. Um, we, we have scaled at, at speed. We want to continue to scale at speed, but you see so many organizations do it with, 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 with big chunks of money where actually, you know, customer service takes a hit for a while as they scale almost too quickly. So we wanted to do it in the right way and, and drawing on our corporate background, but with a, with a fintech outlook is a, is, a, is a nice balance that we feel we're achieving well. So when, so when COVID hit, we were in a, I, I guess, a, would you call it luxurious position and, and, and a, a, a position where we were able to adapt very quickly. Um, you know, we, we have 40 um, odd people in, in the business. Um, we don't have big customer service teams with people at the end of the demographic scale where, you know, they might still live with mum and dad. They don't have space mm. to work. They've sat with laptops mm. on, their, on their knees. We don't operate that kind of model. So we were, mm. we were able to move very, very quickly. Hmm. I think we actually ended up doing business continuity testing well ahead of any other of our uh, of, of our peers and, and, and customers, and we were proactively sending our customer results of that business continuity test earlier um, hmm. the, the, than we than we needed to. So we moved very quickly. Um, and by that, and by that, you mean you were able to move people to remote working environments relatively quickly, set them up with devices and connectivity there wasn't really too much disruption to the the running of the business not to the running of our business no that's, that's no. great and, and you know the, the the outlook that we have is then okay so that's done let's make sure our staff are looked after as much as possible let's make sure the customers are clearly looked after as as well so once that was in place it's right what what do we do next how do we need to adapt our business model in, so not the priorities, but the business model to maintain those priorities. Mm. Um, and certainly from my perspective, it was to quickly look at, you know, selling online and remotely is very different. So the principles of, 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 of the sales process or the buying process are, are, are still broadly the same. Mm. Um, but the way that you go about it and the interaction with, with, with customers is totally different. So we needed mm. to to that and, and and bring out different levels of best practice to make sure that we maintain that 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 you know that, that best selling principles really and then just finally on the on the covid question i mean what does the future look like what does the next sort of six months uh two to three years look like look into your crystal ball please and and tell us sort of where yeah sort of what sort of conversations have you guys had about what the future of the business looks like in this new normal that we're all in now well, selfishly for me, uh, probably in this room for a little bit longer. <laughs> yet. I've not, we've not been invited to any client. I've not been invited to client site uh, in 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 the last month or so. Yeah. Um, we we have uh, my colleagues have, have, have been to a couple of meetings. Um, sure. We are back as a business in the office, so the, the de development teams and operational teams are back in the office um, on a on a on a rotor basis. Mm. So we we've made those first gentle steps back into the office environment because I don't think any business needs to or should lose that completely. Certainly a business in our, in our market. 
Um, so we definitely want to maintain the right balance when it comes to to, to office and remote working. Mm. Me and my, me and the commercial team, we're not moving back into the office anytime soon. We don't feel we necessarily need to. Um, mm. So look, if I get out to see some clients soon, fantastic because uh, I miss it. I miss <laughs> being out being out and about. We all do, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In 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 terms of broader considerations for kind of COVID, post-COVID, I think there's some interesting changes we're seeing in the market and the behaviour. I talked a little bit earlier about Hmm. those macro factors that drive that, you call it the Amazon factor, right? So Mm -hmm. interestingly, we didn't necessarily see um, a a, a drop in the projects that were going to happen when COVID started have really come to fruition. Um, So we didn't see a lot of people dropping priority on our kind of projects. We then saw a dip in new projects emerging clearly because there was a natural delay. Sure. What we've now started to see is we've started to see an acceleration in certain markets, which has been really interesting for us, um, especially in those call them offline markets. So markets okay. that historically not had a demand for digital optimization or digital transformation project uh, programs are now starting to accelerate some of that because they realize they have to to survive almost. Really interesting. Um, so if you look at you know the mortgage market, the B2B market, things that have typically and historically gone, you know what, mm. all right, if we take a bit longer to make sure. it and make it with people, yeah. it's safer and we feel a bit more comfortable. That is changing. They've um, had to accelerate their sort of digital transformation. Absolutely, because it's really interesting. We we I, I'm I guess I'm an eternal optimist and and, and out of negative situations this is undoubtedly is mm. um, for for so many people change will be driven and change that probably was needed or was always going to happen sure. just happens faster sure. and there are going to be new industries and 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 we just need to make sure we're in the right position to 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 win if you like and serve the customers that that, that need serving. Really interesting. Let, let's talk a little bit about uh, fintech and financial services more broadly. We know that open banking has has been live in the UK since 2018, but it's really taken a while to get the adoption that so many expected. Why has it taken so long for businesses to really understand the power of their data to transform their businesses and to be able to better serve their customers? Yeah, I think so. There's two elements, two, two, two almost two questions in there. So, to, just to take the open banking thing first, um, it's an area that, that that's of certainly of real interest to us. We recently partnered with a really good open banking provider called Account Score, so we can now serve up capability to to, to to the market for open banking. But I feel like, and and I, I guess I've, I've 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 said this before in in other forums. Originally, open banking was almost a solution looking for a problem. Um, in that no one goes out and buys open banking, right? Mm. They buy a solution to help them with affordability or, or to help them manage some other part of the process or to use as, 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 as banking as, as part of banking as a service capability. Um, and, and therefore, I think that's why open banking as a term struggled early on. I also think there is a lot more that needs to be done to educate the marketplace on the do- for adoption of open banking. And if you suddenly ask a customer to provide you access, so you're one brand and you are suddenly the customer's face with a set of screens where they have to give access to their bank to a brand that they've only just started 
getting familiar with, that's a really hard step for the consumer. Mm. There's a lot mm. more education on the value to the consumer that's required and why things are happening and why it's a secure process. Um, but that's almost for others to do in a way, and then and, and then we'll adopt as that goes forward. Um, in terms of the broader question around power of data to transform businesses, it's it's I think it's quite simple. They've not had the right technical architecture and infrastructure in place to do it quickly. Um, and uh, with so much legacy, and I talked earlier about silo processes, if you've got different technology partners, different processes, different pieces of infrastructure, and you're trying to tie them together, it's really hard to adopt new things because you're constantly mm. fighting with the tangled ropes of the past, right? So you're all constantly solving yesterday's problems. And certainly where, we, where we're different and why people choose to work with us is because the speed and agility that, that our platform provides helps them solve today's and tomorrow's problems, which is a really important aspect of it. And that's one of the reasons why companies haven't properly adopted and seen the real value from their data today. Mm. Just, just staying on the fintech and open banking question for, for a moment, and then we'll get on to uh, the sales conversation. It, the, the tier one banks and tier two banks have really struggled to keep pace with the challenger banks of your Monzo's, your Starlings, uh, Tide, etc., and banks like NatWest and RBS have set up their own competing products like Metal. T- again, targeting the sort of uh, small business entrepreneur uh, persona. Uh, and now, are these tier one and tier two businesses suddenly now realizing that actually they've missed a trick here, and that they need to create competing products to keep pace with the uh, the the new entrance of your Monzos and Starlings, or are they looking at them as more uh, uh, instead of competition as more competition? So partnering with these organisations to provide solutions to the marketplace to better be able to serve their customers. Yeah, so it, it's it's an interesting dynamic, right? So I think at a, a, a broader level. It, it's interesting that people seem to constantly assume that the new players are doing better, if you like, than the legacy players. The, mm. the, the thing for me, observing it from outside in, is that they're actually using completely different metrics to judge success. As mm. that's the first fundamental thing. So there's no doubt that Monzo, Stalin, and, and, and Revolut, who are often used as that kind of collection, are, mm. uh, are seen as the darlings of the market. And you know, they're doing well, but they judge their business based on the number of people that sign up to the app, mm. um, as is the modern way, right? It's all about breadth of scale before you monetize. Whereas the traditional banks are all looking at balance sheets and P&Ls, right? And that, sure. they're still doing all right. So they, it's <laughs> unfair in a way to compare them because- I see, apples and oranges. Yes, yeah, but- that said, the competition is absolutely the right thing for, for the market. Um, I think more than ever, but I don't necessarily see it from tier one still. I still think they're genuinely wrestling with that competition, competition, and, 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 and so on. More and more, you see, certainly with the banking as a service providers that are out there and, and, and making things so easy, like Rails Bank and Modular and organizations like that, Sure. Um, that you will continue to see a hell of a lot of cooperation or at that, at that tier two down level as people need that speed to market with new products. 
Um, I think the tier ones may continue to struggle primarily because the biggest thing for me holding them back isn't their will to get a new product to market and be a bit more risky with brand and product. It's actually that they still hold those sub-brands, as, as you might refer to them, to the same level of due diligence in terms of supplier setup, procurement, governance, policy. So it's almost like you've got this young child straining at the leash to go out and be different, but it's been held back um, by, these, by, by these more legacy, big, cumbersome processes. Um, so it's an interesting topic for mm. us. We've to date, and not necessarily moving forward, but to date we've kind of avoided proactively engaging too much with tier ones because they can swallow a startup business and really absorb your time and your focus. Sure. Um, you know, we're of a scale where it's probably the right, you know, the right time to start to start looking at the market. Um, but the, if you get that engagement wrong as a startup, it really is quite difficult to get back from that position. Hmm. Let, let's talk about sales and the commercial aspects of your of your career, because as we mentioned earlier on in the conversation, your your career is is very commercially focused and every b2b supplier is ultimately selling change but it, it, it it's exactly that sort of change that every customer really wants to avoid within their business they want to minimize the amount of change that that, that, that they have to expose themselves to unless as we've seen with covid19 that change mm -hmm. is thrust upon them um so you know, they want to move cautiously they want to avoid risk they want to avoid disruption and save money now how do we get people to change as a b2b a solutions provider as you are uh, when they don't actually want to yeah it's a difficult one isn't it um so look, i think a uh, number of elements to that but the, the, the fundamental one is that what we try to do is to identify both the people and the businesses because that's a very different question when you're selling is identifying the people that want change and why mm. do they want change and then the businesses that culturally need or want that change right so it's the difference between selling to individuals stakeholders and finding champions versus finding businesses that naturally need or, or or want that change um so i think that's one of the things we spend quite a lot of time on in the qualification processes does this look like a business that's gonna gonna want what we have and gonna need what we have right um the the more specific answer to the question is you know it's it's through helping them it's adding value to their business helping them understand where they can change and what the value of that change is and how they can do that safely and securely um and again that's another area we spend a lot of time in in in, in terms of not necessarily just accepting that an organization says well we don't need to because of x um why is that and if you did it this way what would that mean to your organization and, and, and almost, and I think B2B selling certainly much more about you need to help educate the customer to help them understand where there is more value they can get out of their business, how they can be more competitive. Our job isn't just to say, here's a product, do you want it? Sure, sure. So it's about creating the value with them. So that so that education of the, of the customers is an interesting one because for a long time, in B2B, we've been told that thought leadership is the way to go, create content, educate the customer, uh, create ebooks and white papers and, and webinars 
to position yourself as a, as a trusted advisor and as an expert, and the yeah. customer will ultimately um, um, sort of see, see the light. But in a world where every B2B supplier these days is creating content and thought leadership, does content really confer advantage anymore in the sales process um, as it used to in the early days when content marketing and, and thought leadership was still relatively new? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I, what I can't respond with is a set of facts, right, that say mm. I know that content-led, thought leadership-led marketing absolutely has its position because of X, right? Mm. Um, and, and the interesting thing for me, and, you know, we do constantly look at this, is does do, do those bigger, more thought leadership-led pieces help you generate more interest or actually, are they more useful as you have, you know, got a lead and then you manage that sales cycle moving forward and you're keeping the customer updated on new things that are happening? Um, as I said, I don't have an answer that is mm. based on these stats. This is this is this this is the way to go. Um, mm. uh, it has it absolutely has its place. I think mm. we've already talked about people's attention spans. What you're not seeing these days is you're not. You're just not seeing the, 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 the big white papers that people sit and study sure. for an hour or so. It has to be, and, and this is the way we manage our communication um, strategy, is, is there is a bigger message, but it's broken down over a series of, 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 of chunked messages, if you like, that takes the customer through a, an engagement process over time and helps mm. almost change a mindset that way rather than you know one single big, big piece of, 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 of thought leadership. Really interesting. So just on the sales question then, because so many people ask me, Nathan, are, are salespeople born or are they made? Because there are some people that have tried to be, tried to sort of <laughs> study sales, become good salespeople. And for one reason or another, they just, they just don't get it. They just, mm. they, they see sales as slimy and manipulative and all the negative connotations associated yeah. with it. Um, and a lot of people feel as though you need to be naturally imbued with this skill of the gift of the gab and, and be a natural born sales person. So in your opinion, can sales people, are salespeople born or are they, are they made? Look, I think uh, they're, and, and, and when we're looking at hiring and we're looking at salespeople and managing their, you know, man, managing their performance, um, you look for behaviours in mm. people. And there is no doubt that you can quickly identify whether someone can become a good salesperson or is a good salesperson based on their behaviours. Mm. Um, and if someone has the foundation of the right behaviours, they can learn to be a good salesperson, un undoubtedly. But there are some foundation behaviors you look for in the person. Okay. Um, what are those behaviors? So for, for me, it, it, this is a, this is a personal view. If you're looking for the, the number one thing I look I look for when I'm when I'm hiring salespeople is does this person have room for growth? Do they recognize that they need to grow? and can grow as an as an individual we will finish our careers because it's not a 
uh, you know, a, a um, skill where you get to the point where you, you know, you're a 10 out of a 10, 10 out of 10 or a hundred percent, no mm. more subject matter. Mm. We will finish our careers needing to learn more and more all the time, right? You never top out as a salesperson. Mm. Um, so the person needs to be self-aware. They need to be um, self-motivated. Um, so, you know, it is one of the hardest things to do when you have, you know, two or three days of not getting the result you want because sure. you can't control it. In many jobs, you can 100% control your input and your output. Mm. In you can't. You can only can control your input. And if mm. your output's off for a few days, you need to, to have that motivation and, 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 and you know, and be pretty goal-driven. Um, and I think the, the, the other aspects in terms of, 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 of behavior are that you need to be able to, um, and I hate the term, but communicate effectively. But what I mean by that is you need to be able to talk on so many levels, but you need to build trust through the way that you speak to people mm. um, and that you don't speak at them um, and that you get them to talk about themselves, right? You don't, you, you, you don't just, just direct things at them. So there is, there's no doubt that salespeople need to be good conversationists, mm -hmm. but I don't buy that whole gift of the gab thing. It's a totally, sure. it's a totally different uh, behavior. Um, interesting. So we hired, so, so we, one of our most successful salespeople at, at TN has actually never done sales before. And he came huh. from a banking background. And the whole interview process was just around identifying whether we felt he had the right behaviors because we I knew see. That he had the, and, and again, when we talk, when, when, when we look at individuals, we look at four aspects. We look at, mm. you know, do they have sales capability and competency? Do they have product knowledge? Do they have mm -hmm. market knowledge? And do they have mm -hmm. sector knowledge? It's almost mm -hmm. four aspects of, sure. of what makes up a, a really good salesperson. Um, and clearly this person didn't have any necessarily sales competencies, but scored really well in the other quadrants. Um, and so it was our job to make sure that as long as those foundation behaviors are there, we can help them with the sales competencies. Interesting. That's really interesting. Um, legendary uh, tech investor, um, I'm, I'm blanking on, on his name now, but he's... Um, the developer of the early web, um, Andreessen Horowitz, he said on a podcast recently that he would rather train a developer to be a salesperson than to be train a, a salesperson to be a developer because it takes <laughs> far too much technical knowledge and know-how and years of training to become an expert developer than it does to become, sadly to say, a salesperson, as, as important as that skill actually is. And that's sort of going back to what you said there about yeah. your hire having a lot of technical knowledge and the expertise and you can train the sales ability later. Really, really fascinating. So, so for those salespeople that aren't performing as well as you would have liked or expected in the early days, how do you give them feedback? How do you work with them to help them improve their, uh, their results? Yeah, well, I mean, ideally, if you've got your processes right and you've got your structure right, you shouldn't always have to get to the point where you're giving sure. feedback. Right? If you've hired the right people and you've got the right processes in place, then, um, as I said, that they should realise almost before you realise and they sure. should be self-managing. But, you know, that's a luxury position to be in. Um, 
and you know I'm I'm really lucky at the moment that we we we've certainly gone down the route of hiring you know much more experienced mm. people initially to get the business moving. So you, you get that a lot. So I get people coming to me going, look, I know this. I know my performance hasn't been perfect. I think it's mm. this. What do you think? Right? That's just as a sales leader an amazing position to be in. But mm. I recognise that's not always the case and hasn't always been the case. So the first thing for us is about expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think this has helped us certainly at True Narrative because we've got a background in running large corporate sales teams. Um, we put measures in place, measures that are discussed and shared with with those individuals, um, and they are you know minimum standards. They are minimum expectations. You would hope that you never have to have a, a conversation about those, but therefore the person that might need the feedback should be absolutely aware that they are about to get feedback. Sure. Expectations from the start have been yeah. made very clear. And it's important that you have those, I call them input measures, right? So what you don't want to do is to set someone on, right, so here's your target. Mm. You've got a year to hit it. And then 11 months in, you talk, sit them down and you go, do you know what? You're not going to hit your target. So mm. why not? Sure. You, able to see after a you know the first week first month second month the third month whether they're on track or off track based on those input measures that you put in place mm-hmm. and they Leading should be indicators. Out, not you um mm-hmm. but then you do have to sit down and have that 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 conversation again the first area i personally look at is what have i done wrong okay hmm. so again, oh, interesting sales leaders will put it all on the person um actually the first place we should be looking is what's the business not given them or what have i, I not given them before you look at them or look at them all all together that's really interesting actually yeah it uh, I, I guess v- very few sales leaders take that self-critical view first before approaching the underperforming salesperson really really fascinating um ryan last question before we get into our, our speed round uh the, the questions that we ask um all of all of our guests um this one is around agencies and choosing agencies specifically to help you sort of drive the performance of of the business because selecting an agency partner is probably one of the most important decisions that any client can make it's really easy to pick up the phone on the spot and hire a new agency it's far more difficult to find an ideal partner to really reshape the way that you think about marketing to propel the business forward in your opinion what's the best way of choosing selecting and and hiring a new agency so look speaking from personal experience when we when we started the, the the business nearly four years ago um i think there are certain aspects that you can write down and you almost go through that classic matrix led approach to selecting someone. And then there's the, 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 the unspoken or, 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 or indirect things that you're looking for. So one of the things that you'll naturally look for, and this talks to the selling point as well, is you're looking for that cultural alignment, right? So I know that if someone's going to be successful in working with us, um, we work at a really quick pace, right? So we're experiencing what we do, but we won't suffer things being slow. Um, mm. We need to move quickly and accurately, right? And if we get the sense that people aren't going to operate at the same pace that we're going to operate at, then 
that's gonna that's not gonna work for us. So it's very easy for us to discount. So one of the things we did early on is is we went and met a number of agencies and we asked them to reverse brief to us um, based on the conversation. Uh, and you know, you got a certain sense that if they were instantly following up, if they were instantly coming back with the documentation, if they were maybe ringing you to clarify something, you understand early on that that's the kind of organization that's gonna gonna work well with us. Sure. Um, and, and then you've got those things that you're gonna write down and score from a from a matrix perspective, which is experience. So they, do they understand the market and how important is that? Because do you want a fresh look on how you go to market? All those aspects are very individual in the decision-making process. Mm-hmm. Really, really fascinating. Ryan, I've, I know I've only got you for a few more minutes, so let's get into our speed round. These are the questions that I ask all of the guests that come onto onto client side, a bit more personal uh, questions about, about you, the individual. Um, yeah. At times, we all hit low points from time to time. I'm probably thinking about COVID-19 specifically. What do you do to motivate yourself in those in, in those times? Yeah, it's pro- probably probably an uninspiring answer. I, I guess it's that it's ensuring you've got a clear focus and goal and all remembering remembering the big picture, right? So you've got to remember why you're here, and and, and there is no better time to 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 do that um, because it is undoubtedly a challenge. I would regard myself as as incredibly self motivated mm. and with a strong will, but actually, do you know what? I've, I've absolutely had moments where I've struggled over the last four months, sat at the mm. same desk and, you know, <laughs> the same thing, but, but yeah. every day, almost the routine's the same. So I think it's really important, especially in current times, that one, people are have that clear outcome goal. So what is it? Why am I doing what I do? And what's my role in what I do, right? So if an organisation can't help you understand what your impact is that you're having on the wider business, then they're getting something wrong. If you don't have a clear goal as an individual, then, you know, have a chat with someone to help you do that because that's really important. And then there are certain kind of hygiene things that you can do on a daily basis, which is change your routine. So something we were talking beforehand, some days I get up at 6, 6.30 and I sit at my desk. Some days I'll get up and go and train and, and then get to my desk at 8, 8.30. Mm. Um, some days I'll have an hour break in the middle and, and, and train or go and see the kids, whatever it might be. So I think that change in structure is really important um, mm. in getting those, get, get, you know, getting those little wins every day as well. Mm, really fascinating. What, what excites you about your current role and position? Oh, I think, look, we're, we're, we're genuinely shifting the market, certainly in the, in the UK where our focus is at the moment. So it's, it, you know, I'd never started a business before or helped start a business before, so I didn't mm. know what to expect. Um, and, you know, we, and we, didn't necessarily set out saying in four years' time, this is where we want to be. But it feels like we've done a good job so far um, in terms of how we scaled the business and, and the type of organisations that have, that have said yes and want to work with us. I'd say so, um, yeah, <laughs> definitely. So, yeah, so um, look, what excites me is is is, is more of the same, ch- changing the market um, and, you know, getting the market to understand that they don't need to use the same old vendors and that they can take a slightly bigger risk in, 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 in perceived risk, sorry, in working with organizations, not just us, but our other, you know, our other peer competitors who are out there starting up as well. Um, because mm. that's how they get competitive advantage. 
Really interesting. What what should agencies be thinking about now to ensure that they can continue to best serve your needs and those of other B2B technology organizations both now and in the future? At macro level, the, the, we as individuals and buyers and sellers, we, we have so many different pieces of content, different media notifications coming through. Mm. I, I, I think it's a really difficult time for agencies to make sure that they can articulate or, or genuinely help an organization stand out or a person stand out from, from the crowd. So I think for me, agencies need to be need to be brave because otherwise you're just going to get lost in that sheer scale of notifications and content and and media coming through. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, yeah, I, ju- I, I, I just think it, it can't be just more of the same and and you know um, safe uh, level of marketing that, that the agencies are going to help with. It's got to be something that's powerful and helped businesses like us because we don't have the big marketing budgets mm. that other organizations have. So it mm. needs to be something that helps us stand out and build and, 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 and build that brand. Mm. And my final question, Ryan, what's the single biggest thing that you're yet to achieve that you'd like to achieve in your career? Other than early retirement. <laughs> other, than, <laughs> other than that. Uh, so, one. Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one because what, it depends how you define career. Mm. Um, if I define my career based on being in the technology market, you know, there is a, uh, I, I don't see myself finishing my career in, in terms of tech at any other business. So it's where does, where does TN go over the next X amount of years? And, and where does that mean that I finish my career? Mm. But ultimately I'm, I'm not doing this because I want to go and do this five more times. Um, I'm, I'm doing this because actually I probably want to go and have a slightly different career when I'm, when I'm semi-retired, whenever that mm. is. It's mm. no time soon. Um, mm. So I'll probably want to go and do something else. Um, and then that will be another little mini career in my broader career, right? Um, sure. But, I, yeah, it's, uh, I try and steer, steer clear of specific goals. Um, you know, my ultimate ambition is to get to a point where I've, I've, I've achieved what I want to achieve and right. that I've earned what I need to earn to have choices. Sure. Um, it's all about choices for me. And that yeah. choice is, you know, spending more time with my family, going and seeing places that I've not sure. been because I've been, you know, so focused on this. There you go. Ryan, thank you so much for being on Clientside. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much, Nathan. If you'd like to share any comments on this episode or any episode of Clientside, then find us online at fox.agency. If you'd like to appear on the show, please email millie at fox.agency. The people that make this show possible are Millie Bell and Natasha Rosich, our booker slash researcher. David Clare is our head of content. Ben Fox is our executive producer. I'm Nathan Anibaba. You've been listening to Clientside from Fox Agency. Join us next time on Client Side, brought to you by Fox Agency.